Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12 for the last time in our series, Romans 12. If you've been studying Romans with us for any amount of time, you'll know that we have been using a bit of a scuba to go down and look at all of the beauties of like the Great Barrier Reef and all the nuances of, of these texts and these chapters. But after every chapter, we've taken a one flyover, kind of a, a, a snorkel to skim across the surface to see the chapter as a whole. And that's what we're going to do this morning in looking at Romans chapter 12. Romans 12 has been one of the blessings of my entire preaching life. And what I mean by that is God has worked on me during this chapter. If I were to give you a personal testimony, I would say I'm different now than when I began this chapter, even though I, I think I, I had a pretty good handle on its contents, but God used the contents of Romans 12 to rearrange the contents of my own heart. It is a significant chapter. So today, as has been our custom, after going week by week and many weeks in Romans 12, we're now going to look at the whole chapter in one sermon. You also should have been given on your way in a, a kind of an outline, an overview of the whole chapter. It's pretty extensive and we're going to go through it with PowerPoint, but we wanted you to have at least that picture to see the whole thing and kind of how things relate together as well. Romans chapter 12 is where we are. Have you ever heard of the meditation that was written by Wilbur Reese called $3 Worth of God. It's a short, powerful, convicting meditation published in 1971 at the height of really the civil uh, uh, wars that were happening uh, between races and ethnicities and socioeconomic groups. And he wrote this, 1971. Tongue in cheek. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of God to make me love a black man or pick beets with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Don Rule insightfully puts some exposition to each of these phrases. Let me read you what he has written. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. He says this, Give me enough of God to make me feel nice and comfortable. Give me enough of God to make me have the warm fuzzies. Give me enough of God to control... Not that I must submit to his control. He goes on to say, Do not give me enough of God to make me acceptable, to make me accept rather the people the way he does. If you give me too much of him, I will have to change the way I treat people. I want the rush of excitement that comes from knowing about God, not the pain 
that comes from changing my person after knowing God. Give me enough of God's religion that I can hold it cheaply in a flimsy container. I want to experience the eternal, but I do not want to get too wild about it. That sounds fanatical and even cultish. Yes, just enough of God that I would experience all His wonders, but not enough of Him that I would see Him for all that He is. Give me the pretty side, not the damning side, not the demanding side. Give me enough of God that I may control Him, not that He may control me. I think rule is right. If this finds any resonance in your experience as a believer in the gospel, then Romans 12 is more needed than you might think. Chapter 12 marks a significant break and a transition in Paul's argument of the book of Romans. It's one simple argument. There are no chapter divisions and there are no verse divisions in the original. It's one letter that he wrote to these Italian believers who he longed to go to see to give them the experience of his spiritual gift to understand the blessing of theirs and to make his way through Rome on the way to Spain as a missionary. And beginning here in chapter 12, he transitions, he turns a key. He turns a page. He makes a change from the deeply theological corpus that he's been explaining about the justification that comes from Jesus Christ by faith alone through grace alone because of Christ alone. And now says, so what? So what? How, how do we live in light of the gospel? And that's what Romans 12 begins. Now, it's a critical thing to see and a not-so-subtle lesson to notice that Right living follows good theology. And good theology produces right living. If there's an ethical problem in our lives, it's always attached to a theological misunderstanding. And the closer we get our theology to, under, to, to matching what God has said in His Word, the more ethical implications it's going to have on our lives. There's an unmistakable link between what you believe and how you live. And a faithful Christian lives life that grows out of a faithful theological study of God and His Word. This practical, this ethical section that begins in chapter 12 and goes to the end is the so what that's built on the you know. So I want to go through this chapter very and you can have an outline there, I hope, that you can follow along with, with me as well and kind of see where we are. And we're going we're gonna to look at this as a whole unit because what Paul's doing, if you look at the big numbers there, number one and two on the side, we're going to look at the believer's and his transformation and the believer and his relationships. If you break it down, that's exactly what Paul's talking about. He's saying, because of what you know about the gospel, it changes you. It transforms you. And the primary target and impact of that transformation happens in relationships. So let's dive in. Let's look, first of all, number one, at the believer and transformation. The believer and transformation, verses one and two. Paul says, therefore, stop right there. Based on the fact that in chapter one, God has brought the gospel, 
that the Gentiles are condemned because of their sin. And chapter 2, the Jews look down on them and, and think of themselves as special because they were given the oracles of God, the, the priesthood of God, the access to God through the temple. Because of the fact that all men are condemned in chapter 3 and also at the end of chapter 3, no one is made right before God except by faith in what he's done, not contributing any of their works. So chapter 4 says, this is the way it's always been. Abraham was saved by his faith, not by his works. Chapter 5, the great ditching of our faith in God happened in the garden with Adam and we inherited his disbelief, his rebellion all the way to each one of us. The first Adam gave us our sin and by analogy, Jesus is the last Adam gives us new life. Chapter 6 begins to say, you need to understand that what you believe affects how you live. That the gospel actually gives a picture of dying to sin to being alive to righteousness in Christ. Chapter 7 outlines the struggle that we all have by trying to do the right thing and having our flesh pull us back toward the wrong thing and just when you feel condemned, chapter 8 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In chapter 8, what a blessing that is. It outlines our adoption as sons and daughters of God. The fact that the creation is also broken and it longs for redemption and that we can understand everything bad in this world through the lens of Romans 8, 28, that he causes all things to work together for good to those who are called by his faithful wooing and are changed by the good news that he's given us. Then he says there's a process. He chose us in eternity past. He works with us in the present and he has predestined us to glory in the future which leads him to chapters 9 through 11 where he says this predestination actually is illustrated by his choosing Israel before they were even Israel knowing they would be sinning against him, rejecting him, but he still, in his grace and his wisdom, chose this nation through whom he would bring the Messiah. And chapter 10 tells us that even though there's predestination in God's heart, there is still the challenge to believe, not to see if you know the predestination handshake. We're called to believe. And chapter 11 says there is a future for Israel. Even though they've been cut off now, they will be grafted back in, cut off by disbelief, regrafted by belief one day in the Messiah. After all that, he says, therefore. Knowing this theology, therefore, now he says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that's what he's been explaining for 11 chapters, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. That's the external dimension of who we are. Our bodies, our corporeal presence, as a living and holy sacrifice, we said over and over, that doesn't make sense. Sacrifices die. And they're gone. They're burnt up. This is a sacrifice that keeps on living and is holy unto the Lord. In the language of the Old Testament sacrificial system, acceptable to God, he always looked to the heart to see if a sacrifice was acceptable or not, which is your spiritual service of worship. How do we do that? That's the external. Then it goes one step uh, uh, level below that in the internal. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed where? By in the renewing of your mind so that you may prove, back to the sacrificial language again, what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. 
Commitment to Christ, he says, is to be transformational and it's comprehensive. It's in your heart and in your mind and it comes out in your body. It's comprehensive in, how do we say it, every dimension of life as regulated by God's Word. If you're committed to Christ, wait for it. Here it is, ready? If you're committed to Christ, it completely changes you inside the renewing of your mind, outside in the living of life in your body. It's obvious, it's demonstrable, it's unavoidable, and it's recognizable. We're transformed. Now, in the rest of the chapter, in verses 3 to 21, he now goes to the believer and relationships. And it's a beautiful sequencing. Because you've been changed inside and out, where does that show up best and most? Where's the deepest impact of our change? And he says it's in relationships. And that makes sense because that's the essence of our existence. Relationship with God, relationship with believers, relationship with unbelievers, relationship with friends, and relationship with foes. And someone says, what about your relationship with yourself? All of our relating to ourselves, verses 1 and 2, is actually a response to God. We don't exist outside of a relationship with the Creator. So, he begins pressing this, the believer and relationships. And let's look, first of all, at assessing self-importance. If you're going to deal rightly with others, he says, you better understand your position. Assessing self-importance, verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, while not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but instead to think so as to have sober-minded self-reflection, sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. This is a beautiful picture of the good news of the gospel. You say, where does that come from? Well, looking at it backwards, the measure of faith. The measure of faith is that which we have in our hearts that makes us believe what is true about God and what He's done for us in Christ. Because we believe that God is the one who saves, because we believe that we contribute nothing, that we're saved by grace through faith, because of that, we shouldn't think too highly of ourselves. God doesn't grade on a curve. He's not looking at any of you and saying, yeah, I would choose you and not. You, know, you really made the cut. You did. No, no. Romans 1 and 2, we were all doomed because of our own sinful births. Said another way, the engine that moves a faithful Christian life is humility. Philippians 2, thinking of others as more important than yourself. Because our faith, the end of that verse, verse, our faith is in Christ. Not having faith in ourselves. To understand yourself rightly will be the, the foundation on which you will treat others as more importantly than yourself. Which is why we come now, secondly, to exercising spiritual gifts in the church. It's no coincidence that he starts by saying, as the gospel impacts your relationships, the first place that's going to show up is at church. These are your brothers and sisters in Christ. Look around. These are the people with whom you're going to spend eternity. And the people with whom you ought to be making the biggest 
impact on this planet. First thing he says, is I want to give you an illustration, operating within the body illustration, verses 4 and 5. For just as we have many members, those are body parts, hands, feet, eyes, noses, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are all one body in Christ and individually members of one another. If you go to 1 Corinthians, he, he spells out this illustration in farther detail. And he, he gives almost a joke. It's, it's a silly thing. He says, would, would one body part say to the other, I have no need for you? Have you ever been sitting around in your living room, maybe with your feet kicked up on the coffee table? If your coffee table is not willing to have its feet, your feet put on it, get a new coffee table, by the way. That's another sermon. And you're looking and looking at your toes and you go, ah, I really don't need 10. Maybe I'll just, I want to lose some weight. I'll take three of them off. Or you think, I have, I have two arms. That seems redundant. Why don't I just cut one off? Or you smell your wife, your mom, baking bread. And you think, oh, I don't need to smell it. It's only for nutrition. I just, want, I just want eyes and a mouth to eat it. I don't want smell. That's stupid, isn't it? It's silly. But that's exactly what Paul was saying. The body parts don't look at each other and say, I'm better than you. I have no need for you. Have you ever looked at any of the parts of your body and thought, well, expendable, not expendable? Of course not. That's the illustration. Jesus is the head. We are body parts. We are to function for him, taking orders from him, primarily to minister within the body. Remember the illustration? Standing in the batter's box, you get hammered in the shoulder by a pitch. Instantly, you want to take your other arm and grab that which has been hit. That's what the body does. How? Secondly here, by identifying personal gifts. We all have gifts. Verse 6 to 8, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to each of us, each of us is to exercise them or employ them or execute them accordingly, according to how we're gifted. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith, service and his serving, he who teaches and his teaching, he who exhorts and his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. There's a list there, real simple. Prophesying, serving, teaching, encouraging, giving, leading, showing kindness. That's a simple list. What he's saying is see how God has gifted you and use those gifts for the people in your local body. Now I know what some think. They think, well, I, I actually really feel like I, I need some of those gifts to minister to me. If all of us ministered to one another, we would all both be ministering and ministered to. We spent some time looking at spiritual gifts. There's two categories. There are teaching gifts, showy gifts is what Peter calls them, and there are serving gifts. You may have one, you may have both. The point is not to go take a bunch of spiritual gifts tests. The point is start doing anything you can listed in the Bible as a way to serve the body of Christ. See where God blesses you and excel still more there. 
And then we're going to break down the rest of this chapter a, a little differently. We're going we're we're to kind of um, group some things together here differently than we went straight through the text. We're going to look at what Paul says about dealing with friends and then in a moment dealing with foes. Dealing with friends. First of all, he says, when you're dealing with friends, which is more than likely those in the body, these are people who are kind to you. First of all, he says, love and honor them. Love and honor your friends. Verses 9 and 10. Let love be without hypocrisy. The Greek says, love, no hypocrisy at all in it. No facades, no fakery. Love your friends. What does love mean? It means to be humble back in our text and to treat them as more important than you and to serve them more than our own interests. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. That will have an impact on how you treat the people around you. They'll see that you are serious about holiness. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. It means the affection that comes with being a part of a family. When you're looking at the body of Christ, you're looking at them as spiritual siblings. Give preference to one another in honor. You want to do everything you can, Paul says, to make the people around you have a better experience with life and a better access to God because you are their friend. Wow. It involves our example, though. Secondly, show them your zeal and joy. Show them your zeal and Enjoyed. Verse 11, not lagging behind in diligence. Said another way, don't be lazy in how you serve one another. What's the implication of that? Can we just be honest with each other for a moment? It's inconvenient to serve each other. It's not always pleasant. It almost always means saying no to you and yes to them. No to your preferences and yes to theirs. No to your desires and fulfilling theirs. Even sometimes no to our own needs so that we can meet the needs of others. Fervent in spirit. Words on fire. And it can actually refer to the spirit of God. You're on fire with your understanding of the spirit, his gifting, his desires because the next phrase says serving the Lord I think those are probably connected in some way we serve the Lord this is important as we serve the body of Christ we look through the experience temporally and understand this has eternal connection and eternal ramifications we are serving the Lord that's important because it's not always going to be reciprocated and if we're looking to feel pleased and pleasure from how our service is received, we have a great possibility of being disappointed. That's why Paul says, you're actually serving the Lord. Which is a great little footnote to say, try serving in areas where you don't get a lot of feedback. You want to see if you're serving in the Lord? Spend a round of Sunday serving in the two-year-olds downstairs. You don't get a lot of thank yous there. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. 
We have our longings in heaven and we talk about that. We understand what makes us ultimately happy and it doesn't find its locus in this world. And doesn't that make sense to say rejoice in hope followed by persevere in, in tribulation? Suffer long in your difficulties. And how can you do that? Because you're devoted to prayer. You take advantage of the access that has been, do you understand, graciously given. I, I think of the invitation in Hebrews that there once existed a curtain, a veil between us and God and we had to send a priest in for us to access God for us. And what happened to that veil at the moment of Jesus' death? It was ripped from the top to the bottom. There was more than just a simple symbol there. It was a proclamation and announcement that we now walk right into the throne room of God without need of mediation by an earthly priest because our great high priest has taken us by the hand and said, come with me to the Father. Are we devoted to the prayer? I mean, instead of thinking... Do we have to pray and should we pray? I mean, do you understand we can pray? God is ever waiting and willing to hear from us. Shows our zeal and our joy. Thirdly, share with our friends. Contributing to the needs of the saints, verse 13, practicing hospitality. We share who we are with them. We share what we have with them. This is another way of saying, this is important. In relationships sanctified by the gospel, we possess nothing more important than our friends. Tax our materialism, doesn't it? What do we have that's more important than how we serve? contribute to the needs of the saints your home is offered in hospitality we share with them what has been given to us it reminds me of Acts chapter 2 3 4 and 5 they shared all things in common whoever had a need fourthly we mourn and weep with them verse 15 rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep you know what that's saying you care you care and remember when we looked at this, we said it's actually easier to weep with those who weep than to rejoice with those who rejoice. Why? We can identify so well with those who weep. We've had our own heartbreaks. We've, we've had our own uh, hearts shattered by disappointments. And so we can share and weep with someone, but when they get and we don't, when they excel and we don't, when they have reason to rejoice and we don't, can, can we stop and say, I want to be happy in, with, and because of your blessing with you. You've got to be transformed to have that kind of attitude. And then fifthly, with our friends, we live in harmony with them. Verse 16. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not have be haughty in mind, a repetition of not being prideful. Associate with the lowly. This doesn't mean the riffraff. It means associate with those who need your association. 
those who are downcast, heartbroken, heavy laden. Don't be wise in your own estimation. Don't think that you know how to relate to who to relate to without just giving yourself to whomever the Lord puts in your path. That's how we deal with our friends. What a blessing, isn't it? What a sweet, wonderful picture of Christian fellowship. But there's another side of this chapter. Letter D, dealing with our foes. This is people, these are people who don't necessarily like us, some of whom are in the world and don't like us because of the gospel. And some who claim to be believers who might give us difficulty and others who might even be in the building now. How do we treat those who push back on us, who give us difficulty? How do we relate to our foes? Look at this theology. Verse 14 says, bless them when they persecute you. (laughs) Bless them when they come against you. Bless, which means do everything you can for their good. That's what the word bless means. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. He adds the second blessing and says, and don't be evil. Don't be wicked to them. Don't, as we'll find out in a minute, repay the evil that you're being extended. Bless them when they persecute you. What's the, the reflex of the human heart to someone persecuting you? It's to fight back. It's to revenge, right? Understand that the gospel it reverses natural inclinations. Natural inclinations cannot be reversed by willpower. They can only be reversed by the power of God by believing in the gospel. Number two, in dealing with our foes, let God avenge you when you're mistreated. Verse 17 begins with the word what? You can say it. Never. Verse 19 begins with the word never. That's on purpose. He uses the same word two times in three verses. Never under any circumstances pay back evil for evil to anyone. That is not the signature of any human born with Adam's curse. You don't pay back evil for evil. Instead, you respect what is right in the sight of all men. There's a, there, there's a conscience in the world where you know what's right and what's wrong. You respect what's right. You're a rule follower. First of all, God's rules and earthly rules where we're now responding to what's right and people would see that. So our reputation, that's what it says, in the sight of all men, our reputation is that we don't repay evil and we do what's right. Verse 18. 
here's your, your protocol. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Are we peacemakers or conflict extenders? All you have to do is live long enough and you will have conflict with one, one who you know, one who you love, one who you appreciate. Are you willing and ready? Am I willing and able and ready to, insofar, look at the text, as it def- depends upon me, regardless of what they do, regardless of how they respond, regardless of whether they're willing to resolve and reconcile as it depends on you, will you be at peace with anyone? Said another way, a Christian never has an enemy even if he's considered the enemy of someone else. Believers never have enemies. And those who are classified as their enemies, what does Jesus say? You love them. You love those who are your, your enemies. What's the practical application of that? Verse 19. Never, there's our never again. Don't ever, under any circumstances, take your own revenge. Friends, beloved, he says. But leave room for the wrath of God. When he says leave room for the wrath of God, that's implicating us that we're trying to execute our own wrath or maybe be in our own mind, envoys of God's wrath. Well, God wants you to get it, so I'm going to help God out. No. You don't take your own revenge. You turn the other, what? Cheek. Why? Because vengeance is God's. Vengeance is mine. I will, God says, I will repay. Combination of Proverbs and Deuteronomy where he stitches them together that says, everyone will be judged either at the cross or in hell. God will take his own vengeance. Leave that to God. As his representatives, we're peacemakers. We pursue peace with anyone. We do what we, we can insofar as it depends on us to be at peace with everyone, leaving the wrath of God to him and vengeance to him. Which finally leads us in dealing with our foes to give them what they need. Thirdly, give them what they need. So counterintuitive. This is... This is transformed living right here, folks. This, this doesn't happen because you go to a seminar one weekend on try to being, trying to be a better person. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. We said last week, this is not that you're getting some vengeance that would take away from what he just told us not to get vengeance. Burning coals had the idea of a of a, of a smelter, you put it under the burning coals underneath a pot that would refine metal. In other words, you're leaving vengeance to God and being kind and peaceful in return to the evil being paid to you can actually have a melting effect on an enemy's heart. 
how does he sum up this philosophy of Christian living at the end? Wow. You want a verse to underline, memorize, highlight, put on your refrigerator? Here you go. Do not be overcome by evil. Stop right there. That implies that if we're left to our own intuition and our own viewing of the news at night and our own experience at work and in the neighborhood and sometimes in our family or at church, then you have a great degree of possibility of being overwhelmed and overcome by evil. Wanting to give up. But it's not a passive processing. Instead, he says, overcome evil with good. Specifically here, in response to our foes, we feed them. We give them water. We clothe them. We serve them. Part of our mission statement reads that we aim to value Jesus Christ above all else in every dimension of life. Do you, do you really? Do you, you really want the gospel to mess with every dimension of your life? Romans 12 is the blueprint for this kind of living. I want $3 of God, poem says. How much of God do you want? To receive God through Jesus will change your life. Okay? Can you look at me for a second? Eye contact. Ready? Let me say it again. Listen every word. To receive God through Jesus Christ, listen, wait for it, will change your life. Do you have a theology for living? Paul's already given us a theology for salvation, a theology for sanctification, a theology for suffering, a theology for difficulties, a theology for future, the future uh, hope of glory in heaven, the future of Israel, the future of the church. But do you have a theology for living? It's the message and the point of Romans 12. Theology matters. What you believe transforms you it makes you different I often go back to that it's an interesting verse in the book of Haggai in chapter 2 remember the story they had refused to go back and rebuild the temple because they were using all their resources to panel and decorate their own houses remember that 18 years had passed by and the temple was having you know tumbleweeds roll across the foundation and they lived in these great houses that they put all their money and time and investment into and, and God says repent and change take care of the priority of me before your own life and then he says this and do not fear what were they afraid of you want a simple they were afraid if they were all in for God that they would lose personal happiness they were also afraid that they would garner external persecution I don't think a lot's changed. What are you afraid of for being all in for God? What are you afraid you will lose? And what are you afraid will happen to you? If He has taken care of our sin at the cross and our resurrection is secured in heaven, do we really have anything to lose? 
If you want a philosophy of living, Romans 12 is a place to start with.